Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondak, and today I'm speaking with Rodrigo Cuyon Quiroga, the author of Borges in Memory, Encounters with the Human Brain. Rodrigo Cuyon Quiroga, a native of Argentina, is professor and director of the Bioengineering Research Center at the University of Leicester. Rodrigo Quiroga, thanks so much for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. Uh, thank you. Thanks for calling. Not everyone who's listening to this may be familiar with the life and work of Jorge Luis Borges. Could you explain who he was and what he wrote about? Well, Borges was an, an amazing writer from the, the first half of the, the 20th century. Well, actually, he lived during the 20th century uh, from Argentina, who was brilliant and became blind when he was 50 and wrote amazing short stories. He only wrote short stories, about 10, 20 pages long maximum. And he had like like an incredible imagination. So he would imagine situations or things that, I mean, few people thought before him. So I guess what does the story that he what's what story did he write that made you begin to see his relationship with current brain science? Well, when I was a teenager, I I read a story called Funes de Memorius. He wrote in nineteen in the nineteen forties, and I really enjoyed. It. I really liked it as as many other stories he wrote. And then we have, I mean, I was studying memories and we have some, some nice discoveries and, and suddenly I realized, wow, I mean, this somehow fits into, I mean, the plot that, that Borges made of how memory works and uh, how could it be to have like an, an incredible memory, actually an infinite memory, like a character, uh, he called it Neo Funes. So if, if I understand from the book, the character Funes couldn't forget anything. He remembered every part of his life, every minute detail, even the things that we might grasp just briefly in our consciousness in a day. Funes could remember everything and had perfect recall. Is that, is that, was that the character? Yeah, yeah. So basically the character of Funes is uh, – Funes was kind of like a weird guy living in uh, – I mean in the Pampas, let's put it at this. And at some point uh, he just fell down from his horse. He hit his head very badly and when he recovers consciousness – he has the amazing talent or, or curse, depending how you want to see it, of remembering absolutely everything. So then Borges, I mean, it's, it's very interesting because Borges says that one time Funes tried to recapitulate one day of his life, and it took him exactly one day because he remembered every single detail. And that when he will see a tree, for example, he will not just see a tree, but he will see the distribution of all the leaves as branches that compose the tree and can compare it with, like, I don't know, the image of a tree that he has for, like, from 10 years ago or something like that. To some people, actually to probably quite a few people in the audience, that kind of rings a bell of the protagonist of the 1988 film Rain Man, portrayed by Dustin Hoffman. But I want to specify, these, although these are both fictional characters, the Dustin Hoffman character and Funes, there are individuals in medical case studies who have this kind of amazing memory. I think you talked about one that was in Russia, a Mr. S, who was, was outlined quite extensively at the beginning of the century, 20th century. Yeah, so uh, the, the movie Raymond is actually based on uh, on a real character, Kim Peek, who was an, an autistic savant who died uh, who died like a couple of years ago. I mean, or two or three years ago, and he was interviewed. I mean, there this footage, video footage. I mean, you can just type in YouTube Kim Peek and you will see videos of him. So you you will see him working, and you you can see how amazing his memory was. Uh, the first, I would say, scientific uh, description of somebody with such an amazing memory 
is, uh, as you say, this, this person called S. S was a character, well, a, a real person described by, by a brilliant psychologist, Alexander Luria from uh, Russia. And S came one day to, uh, to Luria and, and, and said to him something as amazing as, I, I can't forget. I mean, what's your problem? Well, I can't forget. I mean, memories keeps accumulating in my mind and I don't know what to do with them. I mean, they're troubling me and uh, I don't know, I just remember absolutely everything. And, and Luria, well, at first was suspicious about that. I mean, he was a skeptical. He really didn't believe it. And then he wrote down in a piece of paper, say, 30 numbers, just gave them for him to read and asked him to repeat the numbers. And he could repeat, I mean, each of them, I mean, without a problem. Then he gave him a list of, a list of 50 numbers, and he again could repeat the list. He can ask him to start anywhere in the list, and Luria and, and, and S will repeat the list, I mean, as, as it was written, 70 numbers or letters and so on. And um, this guy was named uh, Solomon Shereshevsky, and Luria says in a very nice book, very small and nice book, he published in 1968, that, that uh, he failed as, as a psychologist because he couldn't do the simplest task, which was finding the limits of, of somebody's memory. So, and then Luria proceeds to describe, I mean, how tormented this guy ends up being by, by having such an amazing memory because, uh, I don't know, the memories are accumulating in his head and somehow they're, they're kind of driving him crazy. So when they were doing the work with us, this was back before current technology, like image, you know, brain scanning and being able to track down specific neurons. Uh, there's something about S's thing that I thought was interesting, which we'll actually get into current science, is that when you talk about that he could give him a set of numbers he could remember it, he could remember the numbers, but if there was an obvious pattern, like if he gave them numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, he could remember the numbers, but he didn't realize that they were consecutive. So that kind of thing about being able to, I guess, move from just almost having memory as a photograph to having a, se a second sense of being able to abstract from the information that was seen, I got a sense that's one, something S couldn't do, and with current studies we see with people with these memories, that's also an issue, that there's that, that abstracting ability just isn't there. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I mean, Luria did, did a few very, very clever tests with, with, with S. I mean, if we will test his, let's call it like brute force memory, like just remembering a list, I mean, S will never fail. But if we will ask him, is there a pattern in the list, like what you say, one, two, three, four, two, three, four, five, four, five, six, seven, and so on, he won't notice it. And he did something like, for example, giving him a long list of, of words, items. I, I don't know if I say, I don't know, house, chair, computer, coffee, water, stone, uh, juice, and so on. And, and S could repeat every single item on the list. Now Luria asked him, okay, what were the liquids? I mean, can you name the liquids in the list? And he couldn't do it. He couldn't abstract, I mean, which were the liquids in, in, in the list. And that's something that... Um, Borges described uh, in his fictitious characters, and Borges wasn't a neuroscientist, Borges was a writer, right? a very, very clever writer, brilliant, brilliant person, but he, he realized, Borges realized that, well, if you have an infinite memory, like this character Funes, I mean, you cannot think, because thinking is actually doing abstractions, I mean, generalizing things, getting rid of details, just, just, just to grasp what is the, the key feature of, of something that you're seeing or you're learning or, or recalling. And, and Borges says in, in his short story that Furens couldn't think at all. He could learn Latin, he could speak in Latin, but he could not really 
thing, abstract things. So from a neurological point of view, does that mean that there are different parts of the human brain which, I mean, is there, I guess, a dichotomy between the part of the human brain that can remember items just almost as if it's being run like a film, and then the part of the human brain that they can look at the stuff that is, that's being processed and can come to higher order conclusions about it? Well, yeah, there are, I mean, it is known, I mean, by now that there are different parts of the brain processing different types of, of, uh, of things or of memories, if, if you want. I cannot tell you exactly which part of the brain does every single bit because this is something that is still under study. But, I mean, you will expect clearly that visual memories are stored more in visual cortex, auditory memories are stored more in auditory cortex, and, 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 and so on. There's a key area, which is called the hippocampus, which is at around the more or less where the ear is, but like I mean deep inside the brain, and this area is an area in which uh, sensory modalities converge, like uh, I don't know, like audition and vision and so on. All these areas will send these these inputs to this high-level area, and this area seems to be important for creating links and building up new new memories, like remembering I don't know. Uh, meeting a friend in, in, in a coffee. I mean, so then you abstract concepts, your friend and a coffee, and you link them together. And we know that if we don't have this area, these links just won't happen, or the patient will not be able to create, to create new memories. So it's true. I mean, there are, there, there's kind of like a hierarchy of processing of information, and there are different areas involved in, in different aspects of, of, of memories. But when it comes to neurons, and I know that we can't get, like geographically plot out exactly you know, in each human brain, this is where there are. But in the book, you talked about a Jennifer Aniston neuron, and I and, and I'll explain how I understood it, and then you can tell me if I got it right. A group of neurons that, if you're testing somebody who may have had some degree of of neurological damage but can still remember certain things, if you show them a picture of Jennifer Aniston there'll be neuron firing saying, okay, I remember this. But you could also show them the words Jennifer Aniston or perhaps I want to say a sketch, something that is more a little more abstract, not exactly a visual representation of Jennifer Aniston, and it would still fire. One, did I get that right? And two, what's the significance of that if I did? Yeah, okay. So first, first I have to clarify, I mean, why, why these experiments are done? Because in principle, uh, you cannot record neurons in, in a human subject because you have to put electrodes, right? So the procedure for doing that is that there are holes, little holes drilled in the head of a patient, and then electrodes are introduced in the head. And the reason for doing that is a clinical reason because these are patients that they suffer from epilepsy that cannot be treated with medication, and they're candidates for a procedure called epilepsy surgery. And the idea is that if they can pinpoint where the seizure starts, which we call the focus of the seizures, maybe a surgeon can remove the focus and the patient will get cured of epilepsy. And we know that in many cases this procedure is quite successful. Now, before removing surgically one piece of, of, of brain tissue, I mean, what the surgeons and the epileptology has to do is they have to make sure that they are removing the right area. And that's why they do recordings with what we call intracranial electrodes. So they put these electrodes inside the brain just to make sure where the seizures are coming from. Now, this gives us the opportunity to record activity of the brain in, in human subjects and inside the brain. And due to some technical developments that were done basically at the University of California, Los Angeles, we're able to record single neurons. So that's why we record neurons in the human brain. Now, what happened is that one time, I mean, we, we, we did an experiment and, and to one patient I showed a picture of Jennifer Aniston and I found a neuron that fired to this picture very, very strongly. Then the question was like, well, is the neuron firing to this particular picture or is the neuron really firing to the concept Jennifer Aniston? Is it really firing to her? 
And then I repeat the experiment, but now I showed many pictures of Jennifer Aniston, as many pictures uh, of other people. And then I found that the neuron fire only to, to the pictures of Jennifer Aniston and to nothing else of all the things that I show. And then in following experiments, I mean, we have many patients and we repeat this experiment and we keep on finding these neurons that they fire to the concept, but not to any visual details, let's put it like this. And then we, we also show the name of the people and the neuron fire also to the name. So uh, it's really representing a concept. We even say the name of the person, like, uh, for example, there was a neuron firing to Oprah Winfrey, and if, if I will just say Oprah, the neuron will fire, right? Or if I will show the picture, the neuron will fire, or if I will write the name, the neuron will fire. So this means that there are neurons in this area, the hippocampus, and the areas surround the, I mean, surrounding the hippocampus, the toronal cortex, for example, that they do fire to concepts and not to visual details. And this, this is when it goes back to the story of, of fullness. I mean, in this area, which is a high-level area, high level of processing area, we have neurons that fire to concept, irrespective of, of visual details. So they're kind of doing the abstraction that we are needing to, to think what, what fullness was lacking. So that's the significance from, I guess, a neuroscience point of view. Are there possibilities in the future? I mean, I guess as, we, as more discoveries go on, of course, we don't know what discoveries are going to be, but do you have any sense of if we were to look at this, say, 20 years, I mean, are there, I mean, I know people might be thinking, well, I, perhaps I have family that have Alzheimer's or having memory problems as they get older. I mean, I know that this is still pretty, this is still pretty early in the game, but have people thought about the possible implications of this for, say, an aging population? Well, I mean, it's, as you say, it's still too early to, to make any, any conclusions. And the last thing I, w I would like to do is to give false expectations. I mean, I, I think that the, the, the importance of this is that I think we, we may be hitting uh, the key aspects of memory formation, right? And we know the hippocampus is an area that is crucial for, for memory formations. If we don't have the hippocampus, we cannot create new memories, right? So, and I think we are starting to understand the neural underpinnings of how this memory may be, may be created. I mean, it's still not all proved. No? Some things are still hypothetical, and some things we're, I mean, we're still trying to prove with different experiments, and with experiments we're planning, we're planning for the future. So in, in general, I mean, I think what we're, what we're trying to do is try to, to give, I mean, to have a more uh, clear understanding of how memories are, are created. Of course, when we have a better understanding of this key function, I mean, then we can start studying well, why this is failing in, in, in some pathological cases, like, like Alzheimer's, for example. Rodrigo Cuyon Quiroga, the author of Borges and Memory, Encounters to the Human Brain. Thanks so much for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Thank you. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash MIT Press. And you can follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2012, the MIT Press. All rights reserved.